So, welcome to uh, week four in this um, legacy series. And as you've heard in the previous three weeks, what we're looking at is ways in which Christians leave things behind inside the lives of others, as opposed to the idea of leaving stuff for others. And when I was sort of preparing, starting to prepare this, I, I was reminded of a story of a, the funeral of a wealthy industrialist um, who died from a rather unexpected illness. Um, he was known to be wealthy, and though married, had no children. So his wider family um, gathered to show their last respects, but also to try and find out how his considerable fortune might be shared amongst them. And one rather distant family member was heard rather tactlessly asking his widow in something of a stage whisper, <clears throat> did he uh, leave much? To which his widow replied with as straight a face as she could muster, oh yes, he left uh, lots, everything in fact. I don't think he took anything at all. <laughs> Jesus is known to have spoken about money more often than any other topic. Jim, bless you. Thank you. Um, other than the kingdom of heaven, 16 of the 38 parables are concerned with how one handles money and possessions. And this rather startling statistic, in the Gospels, one in every 10 verses deals with the subject of money or stuff. And in most instances, it is to warn his listeners of the lure of it, the lure of material things and of their power to become false gods in our lives. But we're not talking about that sort of legacy. We're looking at Christian lives to highlight the legacies and lessons of faith that we enjoy in our lives from those who have gone before. Now, so far we've explored the lives of three persons from history. William Tyndale, 16th century theologian and author of the first English Bible, although I'm not sure it was the first, but it's the one that's perhaps most widely read. William Carey, 18th century missionary, and last week William Wilberforce, um, whilst also mentioning along the way William Pitt the Elder and William Pitt the Younger. So this week, I'm not going to look at a figure from the past, nor, you'll be glad to know, anybody called William. <laughs> right. I'm going to talk about someone, as Bob has described, Philip Yancey, who is my exact contemporary. He was born like me in 1949, who's still alive, that's good to hear, um, and who will celebrate his 70th birthday in November, which makes him six months younger than me, and I'll forgive him that. Um, he is a Christian writer. He's the author of 22 different published books, countless articles, pamphlets, broadcasts, and the like. He sold over 15 million copies of his books in print, and he's been translated into 50 different languages. And his books have garnered 13 awards at gold medal level for their content and then their power. His, re his writings are often quoted here um, from books like What's So Amazing About Grace, Where Is God When It Hurts, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and many others. So 
Philip Yancey. Now, Yancey's teaching on the unconditional grace of God, I want to say to you, I believe has changed the face of contemporary Christianity in the last 30 years or so. I grew up in the second half, says he, first half, no, second half, of the 20th century. My experience of the Christian message through my then church going was one of obedience, obedience to the Ten Commandments, obedience to the laws of the church and the leaders. And as a result, what I acquired was a very real sense of guilt and sinfulness, whilst the message of love and grace, I'm sure, was there, but it was more a sort of passing reference. I, rem I remember distinctly as a child the warnings of hellfire and damnation. The tenets of my belief were drummed in. I learnt uh, my tenets of belief by rote. Um, and there was the ever-present threat of a rap over the knuckles with a ruler if you didn't get them right. This was my sort of church environment. Although I was brought up as a traditional Roman Catholic, inside the Catholic culture, which in itself, in 1950, was something of a bubble, isolated from all other denominations. I have to say, all other denominations were seen as heretical and not members of the one true church. I confess that I no longer believe that anymore, okay? But that's what I was taught. Um, but having come from that background, I've often discussed with people in more recent years what their experience of church was like in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, regardless of denomination. And I don't think my experience is actually that isolated. I think even inside the evangelical Christian movement, there was this struggling in the 20th century to come to terms with the post-war world. What we saw was this, the baby boomer generation growing up, the swinging 60s, that's us growing, me, my generation, growing up into their teenage years. The swinging 60s, the permissive society, the growth of consumerism, and the progressive and steady abandoning of what you might call our expectations of acceptable behaviour. So, you know, wear a hat on Sunday if you're a lady, you don't wear a hat. On a Sunday, if you're a man, you wear a suit, you dress properly, you mind your P's and Q's, children should be seen and not heard. All that stuff that was, if you like, acceptable behaviour, all gradually just, if you like, being tipped out on the floor. We live in a world, not that I'm condemning it, because actually I think our world is probably more authentic, more real, more true, it's more honest, but it presents a whole series of new challenges. And the church often addressed what it saw as these threats from modernity by tightening the rules, by pulling in on itself even more, separating itself. And I don't think it's any surprise if you look at church attendance through the 21st century, second half of the 20th century, it went into this steep decline. Church became inward, enclosed, shutting itself off from things that it couldn't cope with. And into this world, 
the message from Philip Yancey that essentially legalism isn't the heart of the Christian message, but rather the unmitigated, unconditional grace of Christ. And when those books started to come out, they blew through the corridors of Christianity like a breath of fresh air. Threw open the doors of the church, inviting the world to come and find the love of God. Now, Yancey's most famous words are these. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. And those are astonishing words. They were the words that were said on a Sunday morning when I first came through the doors of this church. And they stunned me and changed me forever. But having said that, the reason, the particular reason that I've chosen to speak about Philip is for the reasons, is from the lessons, sorry, that we get from his skillful and accessible writing, not this morning about grace, but rather about something we're probably all more familiar with, the problem of doubt. Doubt. Now, Philip Yancey, as I say, was born in 1949. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia, into a very strict fundamentalist church. Doubt in his church culture was not only unacceptable, but was seen as the work of Satan himself. And if you persisted in expressing your doubts, you were likely to be excluded from the congregation. It was also a white-only church. Black people would be turned away at the door. And growing up in such a toxic culture, Yancey not surprisingly viewed God as a scowling sort of super cop character as a child, searching for anyone who might be having a good time in order to squish them. Yancey comments about this period of time and says, there were good qualities, he said. If a neighbor's house burnt down, the congregation would rally round and help them rebuild it. Provided, of course, they were white. We heard about love and grace, he said, but we didn't experience it. When he was young, his father, who had polio, was persuaded through a fundamentalist faith healer to come off his drug treatment, to trust in faith alone, to trust in God for his healing. He did so, and he died very shortly afterwards. Yancey became a voracious reader. And in, as his worldview widened out, he began to challenge this very narrow upbringing and eventually he fought it very publicly. He wrote at the time, a sense of profound betrayal engulfed me. I felt I had been lied to. 
and eventually he discarded everything, including his faith in God. This is the background to the author of these amazing books about grace. So what happened? Well, God didn't give up on him, did he? God didn't give up on him, and he doesn't give up on us, ever. Yancey wrote that his gradual journey back to Christianity came not so much through church in this occasion, but through his encountering the wider world beyond the enclosed and suffocating culture of fundamentalism. He discovered the world of beauty in music and beauty in nature and the goodness of loving relationships. And Yancey writes that cautiously, warily, I returned, circling around the issues of faith to see if it might, after all, be true. Now, from the beginning, Yancey wanted to explore the questions that most often provoke doubt in God. One of his early books is called Where is God When It Hurts? And it tackles one of the most daunting questions, the problems of pain and suffering. And suffering can be a profound impediment to faith. It can also be an enormous spur to it. But Yancey writes that sincere Christian believers can still spread false guilt and confusion instead of unconditional grace and comfort when disaster strikes. And Yancey's intention with this, first, with this book and its subsequent update 13 years ago, 13 years later, was to sound a different note, to introduce, in the words of Apostle Paul, the God of all comforts. Yancey worked as a journalist in Chicago for 20 years. He encountered many notable people whose faith enriched his own. Jimmy Carter, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, Millard Fuller, and the third face is Dame Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement. In 1992, he and his wife Janet, who he'd met through the hospice movement, she was a hospice chaplain, they moved to Colorado, where Yancey could pursue not only his writing, <clears throat> but also his love of the outdoors, skiing, mountain climbing, mountain biking, and his love of nature. Yancey's books always contain a strong personal flavour. He admits, I always write books for myself in the first place. I am a pilgrim recovering from a bad church childhood, searching for faith. A faith that makes its followers larger, not smaller. In February 2007, at the age of 58, Yancey was involved in a very serious car accident and broke his neck. But by the miracles of grace, he recovered. And in August of the same year, he completed the goal he'd set himself of climbing all 54 peaks of Colorado that are higher than 14,000 feet, including El Capitan, which is this vertical piece of rock um, that is almost unclimbable. He did the last three after his accident, which is amazing. He still lives in Colorado, and his latest book is called Vanishing Grace, which is exploring the negative impacts of right-wing politics 
and evangelicalism and how that's corroding at the foundations of Christianity in America. But let's come back, having given you that pen picture of this guy, to the question of doubt. Doubt, Yancey writes, is something almost everyone experiences, yet it is something that the church doesn't always handle very well. He says, I'm impressed that the Bible includes so many examples of doubt. The Psalms are full of them. Job, the prophets, Habakkuk, Jeremiah particularly. Evidently God has an enormous tolerance for doubt. Far more tolerance for our doubts than many a church. And I want to encourage those, he writes, those who doubt. Not that they do doubt, but that they ask the questions. For the church to be a place that rewards rather than punishes questioning. He adds, inquisitiveness and questioning are part of our faith. Where there is an absolutism, there's little or no room for faith. And he also says, but it's better to doubt among friends <clears throat> rather than doubt alone. It's also good to doubt your doubts as well as your faith. The worst thing of all to do with doubt is to pretend it's not there or feel guilty about it. God is far more aware of our understanding and our doubts than church. One of the strange things you can see is that scripture can be sometimes used as a weapon to suppress doubt. It can cause people who do not feel therefore they can ask questions and say they're uncertain, they start to therefore feel guilty about themselves. It must be me. I must be at fault in some way. They start to think, well, I'm, maybe I'm just not worthy to be here. Everybody else seems so certain, but I've got all these questions. And that, in turn, can cause people to give up and not come back. Someone like Yancey, even, for a time. And the last thing we want to be as a church that is so certain and so declaring of that that there's no room for questions. And therefore, people are pushed away. The most amazing thing is that that can happen even with passages that are amazing statements of faith if you use them the wrong way. James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not, must not suppose, for that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Matthew 21, 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and thrown in the sea, it will happen. Or again, here, John. Eight days later, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them. 
For though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See, in my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hebrews. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And there are many more. I don't just pick four tiny ones at random. But if such passages are used not so much as an encouragement to faith, but as some sort of brickbat that suppresses doubt, suppresses people's inquiries. We achieve the wrong end. These phrases, these passages, seem to confirm an uncompromising demand for certainty. But let me say to you, the very fact that through all of Scripture, the call to overcome doubt occurs everywhere is proof in and of itself through the history of man that doubt lies at the heart of the human condition. And you may be thinking, that's a very odd sermon, but let me continue. Let me go, I want to read you some pieces from Psalms. These Psalms, nearly all of them, have elements of fear and doubt in them and questioning. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying God will not deliver him. Answer me, Lord, when I call to you. Give me relief from my distress. Why do you stand so far off? Why do you hide from me in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Or even the psalm that Jesus himself quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the issues that Yancey explores, the questions he brings to the fore in his writings. <clears throat> I'm going to quote you something from him now. It was a radio interview he gave in about 2009, I believe. This was a long, longer quote. Um, he was asked about his writing and his background. I admit that at times I am a reluctant Christian. I am plagued by doubts and still recovering from bad church encounters. I am fully aware of all of the reasons not to believe. So why then do I? In my own days of scepticism, I wanted a dramatic interruption from above. I wanted proof of the unseen reality, one that could somehow be verified. Sounds like Thomas. However, in the days of faith, 
such supernatural interruptions seem far less important because I find the materialistic explanations of life completely inadequate to explain reality. I've learned to attend to the fainter contacts between those things that are seen and those things that are unseen. I sense in romantic love something insufficiently explained simply by biochemistry. I sense in beauty and in nature marks of a genius creator for which the natural response is worship. I sense in desire marks of a holy yearning for connection. I sense in pain and suffering a terrible disruption that omnipotent love will not abide forever. I sense in compassion, generosity, justice and forgiveness, a quality of grace that speaks to me of another place, especially when I visit those <coughs> marred by their absence. I sense in Jesus, a person who lived those qualities so consistently that the world couldn't tolerate him and had to silence and dispose of him. I could go on and on, he says. In short, I believe not so much because the invisible world impinges on this one, but because the visible world hints in the ways that move me most at its complete lack of fulfillment. They're very profound words. A lack of doubt, a lack of it, in contrast, can be, I think, a dangerous source of pride, hubris even, religious pride. Um, it's not surprising, therefore, that Yancey actually has a very humble view of himself. A pilgrim searching for faith, he says. And I don't know about you, but I find that humility refreshing and encouraging because I recognize myself in it, a pilgrim searching for faith. <coughs> so what triggers doubts and questions? Well, maybe I would suggest the fact that we make mistakes and we fail. Let me give you these words. Christ encourages us to follow him. And these words written in Matthew 5.48 speak. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but when I don't do that, which is really quite a lot of the time, um, this seems impossible. It just seems crazy. And... I know that I am nowhere near that, ever. I might try and do it for a minute or two, maybe. But the amazing thing about Scripture is it doesn't leave us with nowhere to go. You know, I don't know whether you've asked the question, could Jesus save me? Does he want to? Maybe you've wrestled with those questions. Maybe you still wrestle with them. Does Jesus really want to save me? Take heart. The Bible has words of 
immense, profound encouragement for you. Paul, writing in his letter to believers in Rome, and he wrote this letter to the Roman church probably about 30 years or so after the death and resurrection of Christ. He writes, I really don't understand myself. What I want to do, I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, if that was the sum total of Paul's insight into his condition, we're now better off. But he goes on to explore the paradox of human sinfulness in a little more. And at the end of that reflection, he writes, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then one line further on, he reaches this amazing conclusion, although it's in a different chapter, it's not, it's all the same sentence. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. He knows it's not up to him, it's up to Jesus. And it's done, as you prayed earlier, James. It's done, it's finished, it's accomplished. It isn't down to us. And in the letter written to the Hebrews, now this was written by an author that no one is quite certain who the author was, but it was written to Jewish Christians probably around AD 65, before the destruction of Jerusalem. We get in chapter 1014, by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's a very short sentence, but it's got some amazingly beautiful truths tucked away in it. If we look at the first half of the sentence, he has made perfect forever. He has made, finished, done. Thank you, James, again. It's in the past, it's accomplished. There is no doubt, there is nothing more for us to do. We have been made perfect. You have been made perfect. But then these words, those who are being made holy. That's in the present tense. It might even, if I had studied Greek or Hebrew or whatever, I might even be able to say it's in the continuous present tense. Is it in the continuous present tense, sir? I'd say yes. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so we are continually being made holy in the present, day by day. So this side of heaven, we are continually being made holy. Probably because we're continually falling over and need to have it done again. Okay? So we remain perfect because Christ has done it. And yet we still have to walk this life of daily walking into God's holiness. Both things at the same time. So we shouldn't expect to see in ourselves, or anybody else for that matter, perfection. But equally, we can rest confident in the assurance of the promise of the cross. There is no doubt there. Now, in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, this was a church he himself founded, 
and when he wrote this letter, it was about probably three to five years after he'd formed it, and he was writing back to them. In chapter 5, 21, he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, this is sort of, if you stare at it and sit with it for a while, it eventually sort of makes your head boggle. Jesus took all of the sin of the world, every single thing that's ever been done wrong in the past or in the future, forever, by everyone, and said, finished. It's no longer the obstacle to God. Therefore, our sin no longer defines us. Jesus gives us all a new identity with him in heaven. I just love it. Identity, the song we've just heard. That's exactly what God gives us, a new identity as his heirs. It's perfect. What this tells us is that despite our doubts, despite our fears, despite our failures, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. When Martin was giving his storytelling a few weeks ago, he has, Martin has an amazing way of delivering a, a talk, a, a story. And at one point in his story, he says these words, and yet, and yet we doubt it. Didn't do it as well as you do it. <laughs> but and yet, and yet, we still find ourselves in the shoes of the man who came in search of Jesus to cure his son, as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and who said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies, doesn't he? If you can. He picks up on that uncertainty. If you can. And then he replies, everything is possible for him who believes. And the father then gives this remarkable line. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus hears both the faith of the man and the doubt of the man. What does he do? He heals his son. He doesn't define the man by the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities or the shallowness, maybe, of a faith. He doesn't define the man by his doubts. He, demand, he, he defines him by his love for him. <coughs> like the Father, Jesus sees us, sees the man like a beloved child. He sees us as his children, as his co-heirs in the kingdom. And the legacy of Philip, therefore, I believe, the spur to his writing, the, the, the reason he picks up on grace so much, 
is that he's trying to point out both sides of the coin for us. On one side, faith through grace, and on the other, our fears and our doubts. Okay, but perhaps if I just stop there and say, there we are, there's a nice lecture, that wasn't that interesting, you probably forget about it, and maybe justly so. So, so what? So what for us individually and collectively as a church? You see, this series is not only about the legacies we are the beneficiaries of from people who have gone before us, or in Yancey's case, still with us, but also the way in which our faith, the way we live our lives, can become a legacy for those who come after us. In what way can we be a legacy? And what's the lesson from today that relates to that? Now, above all, it, I think it's only one thing, really, that I want to pick on. I believe it's being confident enough in our faith to welcome questions, inquiries, challenges, and discussions. Being confident enough in Christ. So that we're able to give the reason for our faith. We're not intimidated by it. In the first letter of Peter... 3.15. He was writing to churches in what is now Turkey. Peter says, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I think that's the legacy. That's the lesson from today. That's how we can be a legacy to others. We need to be a people of faith with the confidence to invite those we meet to feel free to ask us anything about our belief in Jesus. To encourage inquiry. To encourage questioning. To accept uncertainties, their uncertainties. To accept their doubts. To accept their fears. But to do so with kindness and compassion, treating them with gentleness and respect. You've often heard it said from the front here that we are a church that is happy for people to belong even before they believe. And that's what that's about. Belonging <coughs> gives the opportunity for discovery, for questions, for conversations and time for God's Holy Spirit to nurture faith. Our legacy to others is to encourage them to keep seeking for God. Always remembering, of course, that the road is never straightforward. In this life, there will be troubles. <coughs> but Christ has already overcome the world. I hope that you will take up the challenges of exploring all of this um, legacy in your life groups this week. Can I say, if you're not in a life group, one of these small groups that gather in the middle of the week, can I really encourage you to join one? Maybe you've got a busy life and it just doesn't fit. Think about what night of the week I could possibly squeeze a couple of hours to meet 
in a small group to explore all this stuff. These are the places for questioning, discussion, support. They are the place for fears and doubts and uncertainties and faith and love and fellowship. That's what church is all about, finding out. And finally, 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 if you are here today unsure what to make of your belief in Jesus Christ, maybe you're not even really sure what you believe. Come and find me. Come and find Dan. Talk to your best mate who comes regularly. Ask about it. If you'd like some prayer this morning, if you're struggling with particular issues which are undermining your sense of your faith and your walk, then you would welcome prayer. There are members of the prayer team around. Please again, find someone. Find Dan, find me. And we would be happy to serve you in that way. If the band would come back, and we will conclude with a final piece of music. And now, while they do, let's just pray for a moment. Lord, you read us like an open book. We are, in another way, as see-through as this lectern. Your gaze goes straight through us. You see our faith, our fears, our doubts, our struggles, our failures, our successes. You see our pride, you see our shame. You read us completely. And yet, you love us eternally, unconditionally. Your grace is complete. Your gift of Christ on the cross, his death, resurrection and ascension accomplish is everything that needs to be done. There is nothing for us to fear. And Lord, I pray, therefore, that we are a people who hold to you even while we explore and ask what it means. Hold to you. And I pray that we are a people of love and grace and compassion to all those around us who are seeking. And maybe those who are further away who are not yet seeking. I pray they may be provoked to questions by our faith and by our response to their inquiries. May we truly be, Lord, a people who love you and follow <coughs> you and invite others to do likewise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.